In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Many happy returns to you all for a blessed new year to come. <clears throat> Typically, at the conclusion of every year, we reflect on the past year, and then we start making plans for the year to come, and the promises we're going to keep, and the resolutions and commitments that we're going to make in the coming year. And I thought about what to speak about uh, this evening, and I thought about we always plan for a year or the new year, but do we consider perhaps planning for something far greater than a new year? And that's for our eternal life, for the life to come, the next chapter after the life in this world. We'll examine together, my beloved, this evening, Psalm 15. It's one of the Psalms of David. <clears throat> and it poses a very question, it poses a question, a very important question that I think is relevant to the new year. The Psalm begins by saying, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle and who may dwell in your holy hill? This Psalm, if we pray from the Igbeya, we'll, we'll find that this Psalm is in the first hour <clears throat> of the Igbeya. And you'll find that the psalms and the prayers in the first hour of the Gbeya are meant for us to pray them before we leave our home. And there are certain messages that the church wants to remind us of as we're leaving our house every morning. Because, you know, when we go to sleep, this is like a death, and then we wake up in the morning, this is like a resurrection, a new life. Just like the year, the year comes to a close is like a death, and the new year is like a resurrection. So the church put this psalm for us in the first hour to remind us of this question, or to ask ourselves this question. Who are those who abide in your tabernacle and dwell on your holy hill? And I think it's easy for us to lose track of this um, question um, because of the busyness of our life. We wake up in the morning, oftentimes running late for work or school, and we get up barely enough time to eat breakfast, and we're on our way beginning our day. But let's examine this psalm and see who are those who qualify to dwell in the presence of God. So the psalm is speaking to us or answering the question, who are those who are qualified to abide in the presence of God? As we want to make this year a year in which we abide in the presence of God. The psalm begins, as I said, with a movement. It begins, we say, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle and who may dwell on your holy hill? The tabernacle is the place of worship of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And this was kind of like their first place of worship. But this was the place of worship that they had while they're in the wilderness. So they moved, this tabernacle moved along with them as they moved. It wasn't a permanent place. This is why the verb that's used is abide, which is like something that is temporary, like just for a, a while, but it's not a permanent dwelling. So this refers to like our life in this world. It's an abiding. It's a place we're all kind of having to pass through, but it's not our final dwelling place. <clears throat> this is why if you paid attention in the, in the liturgy, or actually in any place, you'll find this word sojourning. The, the church loves this word. 
we are sojourners in this world. And as we say in the liturgy, and we too who are sojourners in this place, this place is the world that we're living in. Keep us in your faith. Then a transition from this temporary place, this abiding, into the dwelling on your holy hill. The holy hill or Mount Zion or Mount Moriah was the place where the tabernacle, I mean the uh, temple of Solomon would ultimately be built. And it would be this place where the people of Israel would commune with God in a permanent location. And of course, as you can kind of gather, this holy hill symbolizes the kingdom of heaven, where there be no moving after this. Once we pass from this life to the next, this will be the final resting place in which we enjoy um, the presence of God and we become members of His church and partakers of His eternal life in heaven. So this is the first part of the psalm and then it gives us six qualities of those who abide in the presence of God and then it concludes and wraps up by a final thought. So let's examine here these six qualities that make for one to abide in the presence of God. In verse 2 he says, He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. So the first quality of the person who abides in the presence of God is that they walk uprightly and they work righteousness. This is the one or the person who knows the division between what is right and what is wrong and chooses what is right. He chooses for his life to do that which is right. It's not the person who doesn't know or is ignorant about something, but the one who knows and deliberately chooses what to do, what is right to do. And if we think about it, the choices we make in our life reflect our relationship with God. The person who takes God seriously takes the choices in his life serious, no matter how small they are. From the, from the, just the brief discussions we have with our neighbors at school or at work, the word choices that I choose to use, these all reflect my relationship with God and how I, um, my fellowship with Him. In Proverbs chapter uh, 14, Solomon says, He who walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is perverse in his ways despises Him. So the person who walks uprightly is the person who fears the Lord. I fear God in all that I do, so I always account for what His um, commandment is in every decision that I make. But those who are perverse despise His commandments and despise Him. So this is the first quality. Those, they walk in uprightness, or they walk uprightly and work righteousness. The second quality of those who abide in the presence of God is that they speak truth in their heart. You might think for a moment of when we usually speak with our mouth, we don't speak with our heart. So what's the significance he's saying here? He's saying that the person who walks or speaks with his, uh, truth in his heart is the person who is honest. The person who is honest. Whose heart and mouth and mind function in harmony. There's no division. There's not, okay, I know I'm doing, I know I didn't do something, but I'm going to say that I did it. Right? I know this really isn't me, but I'm going to pretend like this is me to please those who are around me. There's harmony. 
right? The person who is speaking truth in his heart, there's harmony in his life. Between his mind, his words, and his heart, they function in harmony. Also, the person who speaks truth in his heart is the one who speaks truth to himself. The one who speaks truth to himself. Sometimes we come and we confess in our confessions, Abuna, I lied about so-and-so to this person or that person. But sometimes, my beloved, we lie to ourselves perhaps more than we lie to the people around us. We all know ourselves very well. <clears throat> and if we were to examine the person that I'm portraying to my colleagues and my friends who are around me and how I portray myself online is it the person who I know I really am or is there a discrepancy here much of the I guess to some um, you know the devil corrupts everything even the things that perhaps were meant for the good of humanity but if you look at the internet and social media it's it's made itself to be something where we pr- falsely promote ourselves to somebody we're really not I remember one time I was coming back from the airport and I was riding the shuttle bus and it was just me and this young lady you know in front of me she seemed to be like in her teens and she was very unhappy and then she all of a sudden pulled out her phone and took a selfie on the bus I wasn't sure what was so pleasant about the bus that needed to be shared but she, she flipped her face and she had this most, any, uh, as if she was the happiest person on the world on the bus. And then as soon as the flash turned off, she was miserable again. And this made me think, like, okay, any, what's the point of portraying this when this is really who you're, you're not? You know, really, you weren't happy. Um, <clears throat> so he said that those who speak truth in their heart there, there's this transparency. There, the heart, the mind, and the mouth are in harmony. And in verse four of this uh, psalm, he says, "He who swears, I'm going to skip here for a minute, but he says, he who swears by his own hurt and does not change." What does this mean? This actually means that a person who abides in the presence of God speaks the truth even though it's to his own hurt. Yeah, yes. This person who abides in the presence of God will say the truth even if it's not to his advantage. Even if it means I'm going to be punished. Even if it means I'm going to be embarrassed. Even if it means I'm going to be ashamed. But he speaks the truth even if there's a negative outcome. Two examples come to mind from Scripture. If you remember... Um, Daniel the prophet when he was with Nebuchadnezzar he interpreted dreams the second dream that he interpreted of Nebuchadnezzar wasn't about the kingdom but it was about him himself about Nebuchadnezzar and it was a negative dream about how he will be judged if he doesn't you know, uh, repent and give God the glory so Nebuchadnezzar tells him the dream and immediately after this it says that Daniel was astonished at the dream and it troubled him very much. Why did it trouble him? Because as a steward of the king, he understood. I'm about, the prophecy was against him. 
And this is the one whom I serve. So he was reluctant to say the negative interpretation. But at the end of the day, he was a steward over this dream. And he said, I'm going to tell him because this is what God wants to deliver to him. So he said to him the dream, even though it meant that he might be, he might suffer because of it. Because he was judging the king. The same with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, we know, was a fearless man. But when it came uh, to Herod, he spoke the truth. He told him how it was unlawful for him to marry his brother's wa- wife while his brother was alive. But John, this is going to take you to prison. This could get you killed. And it did get him killed. But it didn't silence the truth. He said the truth even though it was to his own hurt. This is a quality of somebody who abides in the presence of God. They say the truth even though I might suffer for it or even though I might be harmed because of it. Then in verse 3 he says, He who who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. So the third quality are those who don't backbite. Maybe a modern day word for backbite is gossip, right? It's to talk about somebody behind their back. And what's the purpose of backbiting? It's to slander somebody's reputation or to destroy somebody's reputation. Why is backbiting so appealing? Why is it so common of a sin? Well, it's because I can harm somebody without any physical repercussion. If you go and curse somebody to their face or in public, there's going to be an altercation. There's going to be a fight. And we don't want that. So the easy thing to do is just to go behind their back and spread rumors about them and talk bad about them. Those who abide in the presence of God don't do this. They don't backbite. They don't destroy people's reputations behind their back. Another reason why it's appealing is that it's really hard to know what the truth really is because it's often done in secret. So you say, okay, one, there's no repercussion. Two, no one can you know, tell me what I'm saying is right or wrong because nobody really will know. It would just become a rumor. Where this rumor started and how it changed over time, who knows, right? So we feel secure in this. And again, if we look to our online presence, it's much of the same thing. It's much easier for a person to bash somebody socially on social media than it is for them to say something to their face for the same reasons, because there's no physical repercussion. They might just reply with a bad word or something like this, but this will be it. There's no harm that will come to me, at least physically. So those abiding in the presence of God would not slander somebody behind their back, but rather they will cover someone's sin rather than exposing it. They help somebody in their repentance. They will, when there's something that is shameful, they will cover it. Just as the story we know with St. Macarius, who covered the sin of his fellow monk that led to his repentance as well as the woman who was with him. The fourth quality of those who abide in the presence of God, it says, are those who do no evil towards their neighbor. 
And this perhaps doesn't need much explanation. It's the person who does and desires good for his neighbor. Sometimes this is easy to say, but perhaps harder to do. Because we naturally look at one another and we compare ourselves with one another. And if this person has something good, then I look at this and I can't be happy for him unless I have it. But if I already have it, I can be happy for him. Right? But here it's telling us those who dwell in the presence of God, they do no evil towards their neighbor, but they do good. Then in verse 4 he says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. So the fifth quality of those who abide in the presence of God is that they oppose evil. They oppose evil. We cannot love God, my beloved, unless we hate evil. Some people think that we can just, you know, half here and half here. We can love God, but not hate evil. I can love God, but I'm okay with evil. No, no, it doesn't work this way. If you really love God, you must hate evil. Because he hates evil. And he hates sin. And again in Proverbs chapter 8, Solomon says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Is to hate evil. So those who abide in the presence of God honor those who fear God. And when he honors those, he doesn't honor them because of their wealth, how much money they have, the um, uh, the social status that a person carries, or his education, or the occupation that he carries. We don't honor people based on these things, the people who live in heaven. But they honor those who fear God. When I see the fear of God in somebody, even if he's perhaps somebody, you know, we would consider being on the lowest social status, but he would honor him and fear him and love him because he sees the fear of God in him. In whose eyes the vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. We must oppose evil if we want to be among those who abide in the presence of God. God is holy, therefore those who abide with him are called to be holy as well. Lastly, he says, He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Usury is charging someone um, an astronomical amount of interest. So maybe if we go to the bank and we want to borrow $100 or $1,000, whatever, they'll charge you around 7%, 10%, you know, nowadays maybe a little bit more. Usually it would be like charging somebody 400 and 500% of what they borrowed. So what is the, what is the lesson here? Is that those who abide in the presence of God don't pray on the vulnerabilities and weaknesses of the other. They don't pray on their vulnerability. You might ask yourself, okay, well, who is the person who would ever borrow money and pay back and agree to pay 400 and 500%? Would anybody agree to this? We would say no. But there are businesses predicated on just that. They pray on the, of course the person who's going to do this is somebody who's very desperate. Perhaps life and death. If I don't get this money, we're going to lose our house. Or I can't, you know, pay the medical bill for my child who really needs this kind of care. 
only person who is desperate would do this. So the person who has uses this usury, they're preying on the vulnerability of these people. And the idea is to keep the person who is poor and in debt always in debt. Doesn't give them a way out. In the Old Testament, there was laws that prevented the Israelites from doing just this. It would prevent them from, you know, taking advantage of the poor and always keeping them in debt. Even the slaves themselves, those who sold themselves as slaves, they had like this year of jubilee every, I think, seven years that they would be released if they were slaves. You might say, okay, Buna, we're in the New Testament. We don't are, you know, we don't have the laws of the Old Testament. But I tell you, we have a higher law than that of the Old Testament. That's the law of love. And the law of love is sacrificial. We are called to do charitable deeds to aid those who are less fortunate. And the very essence of love is sacrifice. Meaning what? I not only, you know, I would not only take advantage of the vulnerable, but now I will help them and I will take of what is mine and give to them. And give to them. We don't pray on the poor and the vulnerable, on those who are weak. And the Lord gave this example that we're all familiar with of the Good Samaritan. When he was asked, who is my neighbor? Or how do I love my neighbor? He gave them the, this passage of the Good Samaritan. Right? In which we see this Samaritan who's a foreigner, who is passing by, see this man beaten half dead. And what does he do? This guy was on a business trip. Right? So he sacrifices whatever business he's going to. He sacrifices his time. He sacrifices his animal. He dismounts his animal and allows this man to get on his animal. He buys an inn for him or a hotel for him, pays the wages or pays the, the fees for the inn for this man and doesn't put a limit to how much he will pay. The whole thing is about sacrifice. He sacrificed. This is love, right? So those who abide in the presence of God don't prey on the vulnerable, but they help them. And then he concludes the psalm and he says, He who does these things shall never be moved. This is like the, if you saw the very first question was, who is are those who abide in the tabernacle and on the holy hill? And then he gave you these six characteristics. And then the bottom part of this, bottom part of the sandwich here, if you want to so to speak, is this, he who does these things shall never be moved. And those who practice these will never be moved from the presence of God. But the way it's, the language is, you know, uh, it, it's meant to instill a hopeful assurance to those who practice. So, when I do these things or these six qualities about those who are in the presence of God, it's kind of like this hopeful assurance. If I do these, I won't be moved. Moved from where? Moved from where? Well, moved from the holy hill. The place that we were speaking about in the beginning of the psalm. So this implies almost that we start in the presence of God and then by the choices we make in our life, we take ourselves away from the presence of God. And this is exactly what humanity did in the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, do we not live in the presence of God? And when we chose sin, we chose to remove ourselves from the presence of God. Did we do this? We did this, right? We did this. 
And then he says, shall never be moved. So then now this points us to this permanent dwelling place, this kingdom of heaven. So when we do these six characteristics or these six qualities, whether we or repeat them again, if we walk uprightly and work righteousness, when we speak truth in our heart and our mind and our heart and our lips are in harmony, when we don't speak about others and slander them behind their back, but on the contrary, we elevate them and we cover for them when necessary, and we do not evil, we do no evil towards our neighbor, and we oppose what is evil, and we don't prey on the vulnerable, then, as the psalmist says, we will never be moved from the presence of God. It's my prayer that we can pray this psalm during this year, Psalm 15, and have this be something that we meditate on every morning when I leave my home. Am I going to be a person today that's going to dwell in the presence of God or am I going to discard him and put him behind me? I pray we all any are those and make the choices of those who dwell in the presence of God. Many happy returns to you all uh, for this year and the coming year. To him be the glory forever. Amen.